Good morning, everyone. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of deep in this, isn't there? Okay. Well, it's great to have you here. And this is the third one in our series where we're sort of doing a little bit of a deep dive into some of the ideas behind John 14, verse 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is the third one on the life. It's a little bit unusual. It's not what we usually do. And as we go through the rest of John over the next six months or so, we will look at these passages, that some of these passages we'll look at in more detail and more broadly and in context so that we'll get more filled out. So as we look at John 10 in particular, a little bit of John 5, John 11 sorry, and John 5, we'll, we'll just take some ideas from it to help us understand what Jesus is trying to say in John 14. You'll find it quite helpful to have your Bibles open at John 11 today. Because John 14, 6 is a very short verse, and I think most of you can probably remember it by now. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. And you'll also have a little piece of paper that is an outline of where I'll be going that you can use to follow along, to make notes, to jot questions down or whatever, and just to, um, you know, if you want to ask questions later, pop it on our connection form, which will come up towards the end of the meeting, because we love your questions, we love your comments, we love to hear from you for things to pray about. I don't know if... I am sure, I do. That's a silly way to start. Of course, I know, you know, what it's like to be nagged. All of us have been nagged at some stage, every single one of us. You know that constant harping on and on and on that, that people do at you, that, about the things you haven't done, or the things you have done but you shouldn't have done, or that you did wrongly, or whatever. After a while, if it goes on and on, it, it sort of gets to you, doesn't it? It's sort of, yeah. And you just want to say, yell, scream, leave me alone. Now, I wasn't going to scream that time, but you, 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 that's what you feel, isn't it? Now, if you're here today because a friend invited you along to hear about Jesus, you may feel this way uh, about the whole God thing. You know, people keep going on at you about God. Be honest with yourself. At some time, have you thought to yourself, why don't they stop pestering me and just leave me alone? Have you heard people say that? Have you felt like that? Now, often we feel like that because if there is a God, mostly we think everything will be okay. And as long as my good sort of outweighs my bad, then God's going to accept me. That is, Many people think we're acceptable to God by being better than the worst person we can think of. Uh, we just have to be able to point to someone morally worse than ourselves. We haven't murdered anyone. We haven't raped or pillaged or robbed banks or whatever. Now, that's what I want to call Crocodile D self-salvation. Because in Crocodile Dundee, uh, they're walking to his boat... And the reporter with him asks about a time when he almost died. I read the Bible once. You know, God and Jesus and all them apostles. They were all fishermen, just like me. Yeah, straight to heaven for Mick Dundee. You see, according to Dundee, we're saved by the things we do or the people we know. Oh, I'm a fisherman, I'm a minister, 
I'm a nurse. You, you put in whatever it is that you want to put into that little thing. And so I'm okay with God. I go to church. I'm Anglican. I'm a Catholic. I'm a religious person. I'm just an all-round good sort of person, you know? And God is a good guy. And a good guy like God would always accept good people like us. He accepts everybody, well, nearly everybody, except maybe the really bad guys, you know, the Adolf Hitlers of the world or the Genghis Khans or the, the Osama Bin Ladens. It's really people like that that he doesn't get on with. They're the only real bad guys who are in trouble. Is that what life and eternity is all about? As long as you're reasonably good and kind and nice so that most people like you, you're going to be okay. Well, I'm up to point two on my little outline now, the life. This is not the way life comes. Life does not come through being good, but through Jesus, he says. So John 14, 6, which we should know by heart by now, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus talks lots about life. In fact, when you read through John's Gospel, he feels a little bit obsessed by it. Over and over through John's Gospel, he speaks of life. And he's especially interested, not in the sense of life as in not just being dead, physically dead, but in a thing he calls eternal life. So in John 17, he says this. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, life, life in relationship to God, in relationship to the eternal, life that we can have now, that's what's on Jesus' heart and mind. But how? Well, Jesus claims to be the life. Remember that in John 14, 6? I am the life. Not just that he possesses life, or that he shows life, he is life. Real life comes through Jesus. So how can Jesus say this? And what does it mean for him to say this? Well, in order to understand this a little bit better, we're going to flick back to John 11. And here in John 11, John and Jesus untangles it a little for us. He does it by introducing a new concept. He introduces the idea of resurrection. So John 11, 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Now, on Passover evening, in about 33 AD, Jesus was arrested and tried and unjustly executed by crucifixion. Jesus had already predicted that that was going to happen, that he would die and he would rise again from the dead. And the Bible tells us that that's what happened the first Easter day. Now, I don't know where you stand on that necessarily. Many of us here believe that, but some of us may not. You might think that it's all just so much myth. How can you trust a story from that long ago? After all, it's 2,000 years, isn't it? But you know what? We aren't talking 2,000 years. 
The documents we read, what we just read in John 11, John 5, John 3, all, all the places, the documents we read today were written 30 to 50 years after Jesus died. Of course, some people think that you can't believe the New Testament because it's a biased report. But then, when you think about it, any report is biased. Because any report comes from one subjective viewpoint. The dangerous reports, the dangerous ones, are the ones that don't declare their hidden agendas. And the New Testament is very clear. It's right up front. It says my, the agenda of the New Testament is to convince us about Jesus. So you know what the agenda is. That changes the way we look at it. And understanding that, understanding that that's what the Bible is on about, what the New Testament wants to do, we can still know some things. As we talked about last week, we know that Jesus walked, talked, lived and died in Palestine at the time the Bible says he did. We know that within 30 years of his death, the Emperor Nero was blaming the Christians in Rome for causing the great fire and he would tie them up onto these stakes and set them alight and call them Roman candles. We know from other sources that where there are verifiable external references, the Bible gets it right in all sorts of detailed areas. Jesus rose again from the grave. The evidence for this is strong. But you know what? The issue is not quite so much that it happened, but for us it's what it means. So what is all this stuff about resurrection? What does it mean? Well, we read Lazarus was resurrected. Well, he was brought back to life anyway. But this is an event of a different sort to what we see in Jesus. While we're not told explicitly that Lazarus died later, there is no doubt that he did. That's what happens to people after all. Resuscitations happen in our hospitals, though never after three days that I've heard of. But nonetheless, people die and they're resuscitated. In the Bible, this happens a few times. Most notably, the one, we read in, uh, the one we heard about in John 11, where we read of this man, Lazarus. His resurrection, or resuscitation, was different because, you know what, it didn't accomplish anything for other people. Lazarus rising was great for him, obviously. He was no longer dead. He came back to life and he lived a who knows how much longer and was probably great for his family too, unless there was things we didn't know about. But other people were barely affected. But there is more to it than that. Jesus raised Lazarus. His raising came from outside himself. It wasn't an intrinsic quality or something he could do to himself. It wasn't his internal ability. We don't resuscitate ourselves like Homer Simpson does. Where's the defibrillator? Clear! Oh. Right, comes out a moment later and says, these things pay for themselves. You see, it's not part, you can't do that. When your heart stops, that's it. You can't beat death in ourselves. Lazarus had help. It was done to him. He didn't have a choice in the matter at all. So the raising of Lazarus is impressive. Back from the dead. 
But when you compare it to Jesus' resurrection, you see just how great Jesus' resurrection was. Unlike Lazarus, Jesus' resurrection is not temporary. Jesus conquered death. He defeated it. He couldn't hold on to him. He didn't just open the prison door and walk out. He demolished the whole prison. He got rid of the whole thing around him. Jesus, you see, was so essentially alive that death itself was broken. And at that level, Jesus was different. In John 5 that we read, it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Every other being in the created universe derives its life from God. And if God took his eyes or his mind or his interest off any one of us, we would immediately die and dissolve into dust. You see, our life issues from the author of life. But Jesus' life is not conditional like that. We don't have life as a part of our essence, but Jesus does. Jesus is life and because Jesus is life he can give it to others in conquering death for himself he has conquered death for others not physical death we will all still physically die but far more significantly in terms of our relationship with God what the Bible might term spiritual death being dead to God out of relationship with God See, we can come out of the prison of spiritual death because Jesus has broken down those walls. In dying and rising again, we're able to be right with God. Jesus can give us new life. And it's not about being good or being better than other people because it's a gift. It's something that he gives us. Being right with God is a gift. And secondly, it's not just a personal thing. His resurrection accomplishes things for other people than just himself. It's not this personal, internal thing. It affects us because death affects us, doesn't it? For the past two millennia, there's been this search for the fountain of youth. First of all, the ones I read anyway, it was thought to be by um, by Ponce de Leon in, um, in Mexico. They went looking in Mexico. So that's part of what drove the conquistadors, over to Mexico. And now, of course, we find it in an Estee Lauder bottle or in a Botox needle or in our genes because we all want to live forever. Freddie Mercury sang, who wants to live forever? And it seems like a song about mortality. And then when he was racked with AIDS and dying, he sang it wistfully because it's actually a song about wanting to live forever. In the next verse he says, but touch my ears with your lips, touch my world with your fingertips, and we can have forever, and we can love forever. Forever is our day. See, if the fountain of youth existed, it would change everything, wouldn't it? It would change us and our goals and our futures. We cannot be untouched by Jesus' resurrection. Jesus has defeated death and now you and I can have new life. We can't be untouched 
And Jesus defeated death himself for us. Jesus didn't have someone external who raised him. While it's true the Bible does say and makes it clear that God raised Jesus to life in Acts chapter 3, you killed the author of life but God raised him from the dead. But that's not all it says. Just one chapter back in John, to cha John chapter 10, he says this, no one takes his life from him, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus has it in himself to, to raise himself. He conquered death himself. He broke the walls of death from the inside, not from the outside. He won the battle and he won it for us. You see, Jesus didn't deserve to die. He never ignored God. He never disobeyed God. He had a perfect relationship with his Father God. But we do not. So Jesus steps in and says, you deserve death. And I don't. But I love you so much that I will die so that you may live. But there's a further dimension here. If we go back to John 11, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Now, Martha's answer is a bit strange. I think you would expect Martha to not to say what she said but if you you know your brother will rise again Martha would say yes you can do it Lord I know you can or yes really but no what does she say John eleven twenty four. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day I don't think any of us would answer that would we now, it was the Jewish people's expectation that all good Israelites would be resurrected on the last day, code for the judgment day. We saw that when Sharon read Daniel chapter 12 for us. On the judgment day, says Martha, we will all be resurrected. The resurrection was the judgment day and the judgment day was the resurrection. The time when God would come and fix everything up and Jesus comes along and says... I am the resurrection and the life. That is, Jesus claims to bring the resurrection right now, the judgment of the world right now. In other words, he's saying that he is the standard, he's the person by which the world is to be judged. If you want to know where you stand with God, it's as simple as looking at Jesus. How do we measure up to Jesus? Or as Jesus put it earlier in John's Gospel, John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You see, it's a statement about God's judgment. In resurrecting Jesus, God announces that he will and is judging the world. He even shows us the standard by which we're judged. And no one escapes. Judgment comes to everyone. Everyone will be measured against the perfection that is Jesus. And we don't live up to it, do we? 
Now, there are two ways, two ways we can be acceptable to God. The first way is be perfect. Easy one, right? All hands up, be perfect for the week. How did you go last week with not telling a lie or a deception or a half-truth for the whole week? Yeah, don't, don't go there, right? A bit embarrassing. Uh, there are two ways. Be perfect. Never make a mistake. Never go wrong. That's a big ask. But the other one, the other way is not about doing good or going to church or becoming a missionary or going to Mass or giving offerings or any of those things. The only way, only other way we can be acceptable to God is when God comes to judge us, instead of judging us, he judges Jesus in our place. Instead of looking at me and my weaknesses and my vices, my petty dreams, my deceitfulness, my rejection of him, my self-centeredness, Jesus takes my place and God doesn't see me but the one who was always obedient to God, even to the point of dying on the cross. Then, because Jesus faces God for me, I can be accepted by God if I accept it. But to accept what Jesus did for you in dying and rising again to accept him for who he says he is, to accept him for who he says he is, the Lord and Master of everything. Your Lord and my Lord, our Master. So, the whole situation is actually the exact reverse of where we started. We started with everyone being okay except a few real nasties, you know, the Genghises and the, the Hitlers and the people like that. Uh, we've come to see that no one is good enough to be acceptable to God and it's only, only by God's love that we can be acceptable at all. None of us lives up to God's standards, even when we do try. And most people don't try. We just go our own way, doing our own thing and not giving God a serious thought. Or we say with William Henley, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. This is who I am. I'm in control of me, if nothing else. We make our own decisions and we reject our maker. But that attitude will bring God's judgment and so brings us spiritual and physical death. Yet God still loved us and provided a way for us to get right with him. Jesus, the only true holy person, lived and died so that we could be friends with God. And on the third day, he was raised to life. He was resurrected as God's ruler of the world. He had conquered death and so offered new life to all who will trust in him. So will we trust him who died for us? so that we may live. And just to flick that around, if you're already a believer, if no one is good enough to be acceptable to God, then anyone can be acceptable to God. Because it's not about them, it's about Jesus. So if you know someone, if you have someone in your heart, in your mind, in your thinking, you think, oh, they could never be a Christian, they could never do this, they could never be whatever, it's because you think that they're too far gone to be accepted by God. And you know what? That's not right. Because anyone, anyone can be. I remember once a very famous Sydney evangelist said to me, 
do you think Adolf Hitler is in heaven? Of course, the group I was asking, of course not, how could you possibly think that Adolf Hitler was in heaven? Well, he said, if you, do, if you can say that categorically, you do not believe that salvation is a gift. You think it's all about works. Now, don't get me wrong. I do not think that's true. I don't, I don't think Adolf Hitler is in heaven. I don't know. But anyone can be in heaven because it's a gift. And perhaps all that person needs is to hear the good news explained clearly and sensitively by someone they trust, perhaps even by you. And also, there are those believers amongst us who struggle under a burden of shame for our past guilt. And while it is right to be regretful about these things, the wonderful, life-changing news is that God accepts us and loves us, knowing all of that and forgiving all of that. Isn't that great news about what Jesus has done for us? But if you aren't yet a believer then I want to put before you that we only have two choices. We can live for ourselves and thus we reject God and Jesus. And if we do that, God will surely judge us and we will bear the responsibility for our own rebellion. We will face judgment because we've rejected the message of life, the escape plan, if you want. There is no life outside Jesus. Jesus is the life. Or we can live with Jesus as our ruler and trust him with our life. Trust that he died and rose again for us and gives us new life, real life, life that is centred around God and not our petty ambitions, but God's great vision for our world and for us. So there's a challenge. Which way do we want to live? Which way do you want to live? Because there's no other way. There's no middle ground. There's no alternative plan. You know, often the reason that nagging bothers us so much is that it's right. If it was wrong, you'd just push it off, wouldn't you? But you know it's right. If people are wrong when they hassle you, it's not too hard to shrug it off, ignore it or explain it. But the reason nagging is so annoying is nearly always because we are wrong. And they are right. And we just don't want to admit it. Think about it. Deep down, do you know that this message is true? Do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? died and rose again from the dead. Jesus is the one who offers life. Jesus is the life. But you just don't want to think about it? Where are you? What will you do? Will you choose life? How will you respond to Jesus? And you can do something about that today. We'd love to talk to you about it. Come and talk to Lauren, come and talk to myself, 
talk to one of the Christians who you may have been speaking to. We'd love to help you know that life, the, the person of Jesus who is the life, the one who offers new life to everyone. Do it today. You can pop it on the connection form, which is the, the top QR code, or come up on the screen later. Please reach out. Or if you've got questions, please reach out to ask your questions. But let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may we know Jesus, the true life of the world, the one who offers us life. May we trust him so that his life overflows into our life. Change our hearts and minds to know and love and trust him who is the way, the truth and the life. Amen. And we're going to sing again. And I want to in particular point out verse 3 of what we're about to sing where we sing this. I will see, see the world to come despite the sin that I have done. For there is grace, God's kindness, God's love awaiting me. All who call upon the Lord will rise to life with peace assured. For there is grace awaiting me.